Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, online, we you can search Faith on Hill on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can find the live stream at 10.30 a.m. at faithonhill.com, and all the stuff ends up on our Facebook page as well. You can follow us on social media at Faith on Hill. Now, in person, we are on, at our building on Hill Road, and we gather together every Sunday morning. We have kids' church. We have prayer. We have worship and song. We gather as a family and a community of faith. We study God's Word together. And today we are starting a new study in the book of Philippians. So we're going to be in chapter 1. Now throughout the week, we gather in small groups. We have small groups that meet throughout the week. We have small groups that are uh, online. We have small groups that are in person. That is our main focus outside of Sunday morning, is being a family, a community of faith that gathers together, that prays together, that prays for each other, that checks in on each other, and goes deeper into the Word of God. So every uh, small group is based around discussion of the Sunday morning Bible study. Then additionally, we have our podcast, uh, Talk About Anything, Starting Poised, and 20-Minute Bible Study. We also have youth group that meets throughout, uh, on, well, not throughout the week, youth group meets every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. And then Kids Church is open to all the kids. They come in for the first couple songs, and then they're dismissed to Kids Church, and they have a lot of fun. All right, we're going to start our study in the book of Philippians this morning, so turn to Philippians chapter 1. The book of Philippians is a letter. It, it's a letter. It wasn't written as a book. It was written as a letter. You know, I've read books that were obviously not intended to be books, at least originally. Um, sometimes I read books uh, from theologians that were obviously just doctoral or master's uh, thesis dissertation papers that they expanded into a book that really should have been a couple of chapters shorter. Uh, sometimes you get the feeling like a book is a collection of thoughts, blog posts, journals, sermons, and it's not really a coherent book as so much as a collection of essays. Uh, sometimes something was intended to be a book. The, the Bible is, is not one book. It's 66 books by over 40 different authors written over a 1,500-year period. The Hebrew Scripture, what we call the Old Testament, was primarily written in Hebrew with some Aramaic and other local dialects. The New Testament, the the writings of the apostles, primarily written in first century Greek. And a lot of them were letters. The Gospels were intended to sort of be larger manifestos. Luke intended the book of Acts to be a, a, a history of the original Christians. Uh, the book of the Revelation was intended to be an apocalyptic message to the church. But a lot of the, the New Testament is letters. And Paul, the apostle, is writing a letter to the church in the city of Philippi. Really what it is, is it's one man writing a letter to distant friends. And it says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God Every time I pray for you, or every time I remember you, in all my prayers, I thank, 
I, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending the gospel or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how long I, or sorry, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me actually has served to advance the gospel. Now, what had happened to Paul? He was in chains. We know that from the earlier verse. And we don't know an exact date for when he wrote this letter, but there were several key points when Paul was in chains. He was imprisoned, uh, of course, in a Philippian jail. So it's possible that he wrote this while in that jail, although highly doubtful given who it was from and also the circumstances. He wasn't in that Philippian jail for very long. More likely, this was either written while Paul was in chains uh, in Jerusalem or later in Caesarea, uh, before in the, the later part of the book of Acts, before he was transferred to Rome. And I tend to think that he wrote this while he was in Rome. He seemed to be pretty pro- prolific in his letter writing during that season. I don't have a hard opinion one way or the other. I don't think it changes anything one way or the other. But the, the idea is understanding when he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me actually served to advance the gospel. He's saying, yeah, I'm in chains right now. I am imprisoned because I have testified that Jesus is risen. But it's actually a good thing. Verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone that I am in chains for Christ. What he is saying is everybody knows why I'm here. Everybody has heard the testimony of Jesus. The good news is spreading. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So what he's saying is, is that the local church, the local Christians, wherever he's at, whether it was the church in Caesarea Philippi, the church in Jerusalem, or the church in Rome, or maybe all three, but wherever he's at, The local Christians have become emboldened because they say if Paul can keep sharing Jesus with his jailers and his tormentors, how much more can we who are free people go out and share the good news of Jesus with our family, our friends, our neighbors, even our enemies? Verse 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy or rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here in defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And yet, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that it is through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by my life 
or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I am going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul is writing to distant friends, the church in the city of Philippi, while he is in chains, imprisoned for proclaiming the risen Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, this letter gives us some insights into the state of the church. We are never told in the New Testament exactly how each local church functioned. We are never told their bylaws, their structures. We aren't told uh, what an average church gathering looked like. Later writings, some 50 to 100 years after the apostles had all died, give us an indication of what a church service in their experience was like. But even that should be taken cautiously, as if one writer in South Central Europe would be indicative of what every church would be like, what the church in Africa would look like, what the church in uh, Western Asia, what the church in Northern, uh, you know, kind of the, what we would think of as like the Balkans or the Caucasus, what the church stretching east into India would have looked like. And yes, even by the time of the apostles, the church had spread to all of those places. The gospel went north, south, east, and west. The good news of Jesus was spreading quickly. But we don't know exactly what each local church looked like. One of the things that happens is that people take single verses or single chapters of the New Testament, the ones that fit closest to the way that they know how to do church, to the structures and forms and, and styles that they are most comfortable with, and then they minimize or just outright ignore any verse that is different. Some people love um, a church that is led by a group of elders. Others are more comfortable with a church that's led by a single leader, a pastor figure. And then they pick which one they prefer. What if it's both? Or what if, hear me out here, it wasn't like both in that the church is led by elders and also a single leader. What if there was a church that was led by a group of elders and a church over there that was led by a single leader? As I read the New Testament, the Bible talks about both and a mixture of both. That there are churches that the Apostle John writes to or speaks of that seem to be dealing with one or two main leaders. And there are other churches, for example here, the church in Philippi, that seem to be led by sort of a council or a team of leaders. And then when Paul sent Timothy to the city of Ephesus, he was the main primary leader. When Paul sent Titus to the island of Crete, he was the main primary leader. But they were, Timothy was to appoint elders to serve with him, and there were already elders in Ephesus. So what it seems to me is that the church in Philippi was there was one church in town, 
and it was led by a team or a group of leaders, elders, overseers of the church. Some of your Bibles will say elders. Some translations choose the word overseers, but it comes from that same uh, word of uh, presbyteros, the, the overseers of the church. It seems that in Ephesus, there was one main leader, and yet the church wasn't in one place. There were multiple small houses or groups of house churches, and there might be a couple of leaders that oversaw them and a couple of leaders that oversaw them, and then they all connected with each other through Timothy's leadership. There's, there's a lot of possibilities there. But what we do see from this beginning of the book of Philippians is that there is a global church and a local church. When people say the church, what do you mean by that? Some people will speak about the wider church worldwide or nationally, and what they're really talking about is their local experience. I have a friend who is not a Christian but was raised in the church and now hates the church. Maybe you have a friend like that. I have multiple friends like that. And I'll talk to him, and sometimes what will happen is he will take his caricature impression of what is going on in churches in like Georgia or Alabama or Florida and then project it onto his church upbringing. And I'll remind him, hey, man, your church upbringing was nothing like what you are describing. And the reason I know that is because I know your family, I've known you your whole life, and I was there for most of what you're describing. You are taking a caricature of somewhere else and projecting it onto your upbringing because it, it gives you more street cred. On the flip side, I've known people who had a horrific church upbringing. They, they were part of a toxic church, an abusive local church, and then they will take that experience and project it onto the wider church of Jesus as if that's what's going on worldwide, as if that's representative of millions of Christians in China, as if that's representative of millions of Christians in India, as if that's representative of what's going on in the church in uh, Africa, the church in Eastern Europe. We, we, we like to think that our American experience is somehow definitive of everyone else's experience, and it's not. There is a global church and there is a local church. There is a local church and there is a regional church. This idea is, is that what Paul represents is the global church. Paul is writing to them, telling them about what's going on in other churches. Paul is telling them about the things that are going on in the wider world. And at the same time, the, the Christians in Philippi have a responsibility to their town, to their city, to their people. You know, a church in Boise, Idaho, a church in, you know, Cape Town, South Africa, a church that's in uh, Moscow, Russia, a church anywhere over the world, they have responsibility for their people, for their location. They don't have responsibility for Milwaukee, Oregon, or Gladstone. And yet at the same time, I have found that Christians all over the world, when they meet Christians from somewhere else, want to hear about what's going on in the global church. They want to hear about what's going on in the church in Japan, in the church in Mexico, in the church here or there or wherever. That we, we want to have that connection with each other. And we do. You know, through different people in our church family, you know, somebody knows a church in Maui. 
So when the fires happened, we knew who to pray for and how to pray for them and what, how can we support and what can we do? You know, I have connections down in Mexico. So if something happens there, we know how to pray, who to connect with. Somebody else has connections with churches in rural Oregon. And so we have connections there. We care about what's going on in other places. Paul's describing a global church and a local church. The local church was overseen, was led by these overseers or elders and these deacons. And the deacons are the, uh, are the kind of the functional servants of the church. And they were connected to one another. Paul was connecting the church in Philippi with the churches in Rome, the churches in uh, what we would think of as the Holy Land. He, he was connecting them with each other. In later times uh, in the first century, the apostle John pastored seven churches centered out of the city of Ephesus, but there was this sort of circuit region. And so the church in this one town, you know, the church in the town of Laodicea and the church in the town of Smyrna and the church in the town of Pergamum were connected to each other because of these John and these other leaders who would travel around and they were, had a connection to each other. Now that obviously begs the question, what kind of system is Faith on Hill a part of? We are a local church. Um, one of the things that is very common in churches in America, and I believe it is one of the most unhealthy things about churches in America, is what's called the donut effect. That means you put a pin in the map where the church is physically, geographically. And then for a massive amount of churches in America, and this is true in the American South, Northeast, California, Oregon, wherever, this is actually one of the things that is very unifying for churches across the nation. You put the pin and then there's this big, empty donut area where very few to no people that are part of the church actually live. So what that would look like in our area is if you stuck a pin in a church here in like North Clackamas County, and then you did this big donut area, this big empty area where nobody in the church really lived and people drew, drove in from Gresham or Canby or Oregon City or Southwest Portland or wherever. And the reason is, is that they grew up in the church, but now they live out in Gresham. They grew up in the church, but they bought a place out in Canby. And they still drive in, but they've you know, always gone to that church. I actually know people who are part of uh, some of our sister churches that live in this neighborhood, but they drive 30, 40 minutes to this other church because that's where they've always gone. That donut effect thing is very real. It was one of the things that drew us to Faith on Hill was that People that go to Faith on Hill have always just lived in this area, Milwaukee, Oak Grove, Gladstone. This is where we live. This is where we're from. I believe it's an unhealthy thing if a church doesn't have its people locally. Now, does that mean that you can't? Look, I'm not trying to bring judgment on anybody. In my childhood, I was part of the donut effect. We drove 20 to 30 minutes every Sunday to church. I don't think that was healthy, by the way but I'm, I'm not trying to throw shade at anybody. That was my upbringing. And I'm thankful for the church I grew up in. So what are you going to do? But we're a local church and we have one pastor. That's me. Now we have a team of leaders and I would say that they are the, the function of deacons. We have trustees. We have leaders that we go to for things. You know, uh, people like Dave and Janelle Centers, you know, Mark Harris, Kaylee Centers, uh, Greg Wilson, Andy Hill, just people who are sort of leaders in our church. 
people that have um, natural influence, natural authority, people who have an official position, and, and we work together. So in that sense, you could say I'm the elder here at Faith on Hill, and we have a team of deacons. But we're not alone. We are a part of a, what's called a connectional system. We're not a denomination. The main office somewhere doesn't tell us what to do, but we are connected intrinsically with other churches. In fact, we have a couple of churches that are trying to leave our group right now, and they're finding out, they thought they could just, oh, we're just going to tell you we're leaving, but they found, they're finding out that, you know, the way that we structure our churches, you can do that. We're not like, we're not like authoritarian and saying like, no, you will stay with us, but we are connected with each other, and so the actual process is not as quick and easy as they thought it would be because there are things involved with being connected with each other. I'd put it this way. We are part of the Pacific Conference of Churches, and every year in November, the Pacific Conference gathers together. In a few minutes after I'm done recording this, I'm going to go and pray with other pastors in our area from the Pacific Conference. And we are connected together. And we have this thing called the itinerant elders. And it's, it's the itineracy is this term that comes from way back. But it's this idea that um, originally, like when our church was started, there was this one guy who showed up and he preached in Milwaukee on Wednesday nights and he preached in Canby on Saturdays and he preached somewhere else on Sundays. And he would do a sort of a circuit of preaching and multiple churches were pastored by one person. Now we would say that we're all connected that the, the elders together, I, I have responsibility to care about and pray for the other churches in our conference. The other pastors in our conference have responsibility to care about and pray for us at Faith on Hill. We are connected with each other. If the superintendent, we have, uh, we have the superintendent who we elect every four years, and the superintendent kind of oversees all of our churches, and if he comes in, he's not a stranger to us, he's family doesn't matter who it is. Currently, our superintendent is a pastor named Brian Hotram. Superintendent Brian Hotram, who's preached at Faith on Hill before he's appeared on our Talk About Anything podcast. He's not a stranger, he's family. The other pastors in our, in our conference of churches should not be considered strangers, they're family. We're connected with each other. So if somebody says, how are you guys structured? We have assigned pastors. Every year I get assigned by the superintendent at Faith on Hill. And then we serve with a team of deacons here, even though we don't call them that, but that's what we do. And then we are connected as part of a connectional system to other churches in our conference and to the conference itself. Now, there are always people that have their like really strong opinions about how churches should be structured. And I had a friend who was like, you don't call yourself an elder. It has to be elders and deacons. And we don't do that. We, we have a pastor and then we have a team of leaders. And I'm like, man, who cares what it's called? If, if I were to say that I'm Elder Adam, somebody who had a background in the Mormon church would think that I was Mormon. If I were to go around and call myself this thing or that thing, somebody who had another experience would have just some weird association with that. So we just say, you know what? For, for the terms of just understanding, we have a leadership team. I'm the pastor here. That's what we do when we're part of a, a conference of churches that's connected to one another. And if I go sideways, somebody can come in and say, this isn't good. And we have an obligation and a promise to each other as churches. Churches in Salem, churches out on the coast in Florence, churches up in Seattle, churches out in Spokane, churches in Bend. We have an obligation to each other as a family to care. And so Paul's describing the state of the church. And he's saying there's a global church and there's a local church. 
Locally, the church was led by elders and deacons, but they were connected to other churches. They weren't alone. They weren't isolated. And what is Paul's connection to the Philippian church? Well, he planted the church. He doesn't say it in the letter because he wouldn't need to. They would have known. But Paul started the church in Philippi. And then we're told here in the letter that he was supported by the church. As he was going around doing his, his apostle stuff, the church in Philippi had supported him in prayer and in relationship and financially. And he's saying, hey, you have a share. You have a share. Anything that I do for Jesus, you have a share in that. That part of that reward is accounted to you because you've supported me. And not just that he had started the church and left, not just that they had supported him. He said, thanks, I appreciate it. But he had a continued relationship with the church. I've been pastoring for most of my adult life, and I try as much as possible to continue to have relationship with the churches that I have been a part of. I believe one of the really unhealthy things in what we might call professional church or professional pastoral culture is there's this weird thing where there's a lack of relationship most of the time once you leave. I think that is odd. I think it is unhealthy. I think it's unbiblical. It's not always possible. I'll be straight up honest about it. It's not always possible. I was at a church. I've talked about this before. I was at a church before I came here. And I was fired. They didn't call it that. Publicly, I, was, I had to tell the church I had quit. And they had a severance package for me. And quite honestly, I needed it. To move back from California, I needed that severance package. It would have been really difficult uh, to, to do the move in a, in a healthy way. And so um, I had to, I had basically like a gag order, an NDA. And so I had to tell the church I had quit. I hadn't, I'd been let go. Uh, I'd been let go because I had come down there as part of a thing that was supposed to like transition the church from its founding generation to the next generation, the whole thing. But the church wasn't ready to do that. And so I was let go. I had to tell everybody I was quitting and I had to be quiet about it. And honestly, I still have relationship and connection with some people that were part of that church. But with that church itself, with its leadership, I don't have connection. And it's a bummer. And I hate that. I hate that kind of brokenness. I hate that sort of broken relationship. I still have connection with most pastors I've worked with. I still have connection with somebody in just about every church I've served in, whether at a, at a paid staff level or a volunteer level. I want to have that connection. So Paul was started the church, he was supported by the church, but he continued relationship with the church. And in that relationship, he was honest. When he speaks about, I'm torn, in verse 23, between two desires, I want to depart and be with Christ. He's saying, I'm tired. I've been in chains. I've been beaten. Look, let me be honest. I, I want to just go home and be with Jesus. He's not fake with them because he has relationship. A church where the pastor does not have relationship is a church where the pastor can never be honest and the church isn't going to know whether the pastor's shining them or not. I want relationship with people the way that Jesus wants relationship with us. Not, not that I'm Jesus. I'm, it's not some cult thing. I just want to know people. I want to be connected to people. I want to know how the people in our church are so I can pray for people. There are people who watch online every Sunday morning. We see likes or comments, but, but they don't have relationship with us. We want to know you so we can know how to pray for you. We, it, you know what? Some people can't come in person. Some people can't be part of our fellowship in, in the same way. But we still want to know you. 
We still want to be known by you and for you to know us so we can pray for you, so we can care for you. We have an online small group that meets on Wednesday nights. We post a lot of online content for the benefit of people. But part of that is a relational component. And Paul's being honest with the church because he has relationship with them. He's writing to distant friends, but they're still friends. That is the core piece. It is one of the things that I have preached about and in some ways preached against most firmly in the last several years. There is a cancer in the church in America, and that cancer is this. People in the church are more likely to have relationships with non-believers who agree with them politically than they will with believers who have a slightly different opinion about politics. People in the church are more likely to have relationship with somebody in their own demographic who hates Jesus than they are with people in the church from a different demographic. Older people and younger people, right and left, it is harder to connect with somebody that you disagree with on a political or philosophical level. It's harder to connect with somebody who has a different demographic experience, somebody who's older and you're younger, somebody who's younger and you're older. But if Jesus is the most important thing, if Jesus is the central thing, then recognizing my spiritual family will supersede those divides. And Paul was connected with the church He had a relationship with the church. He was honest with the church. And that's what we need to model. That's what we need to grab for. Now, he has this whole thing about people preaching Jesus for false reasons. And it's sort of amusing that he has here. It's sort of a general thought he's having. He's saying, you know what? People here are emboldened because of my change. Remember, he said that, right? That there were people locally who were being more vocal about their faith in Jesus because they saw how Paul was standing firm even though he was imprisoned for his faith. But then he acknowledges, you know what? Some of them are doing so for bad reasons. Some of them are doing so because they have envy of Paul. Why does he get to be the apostle? Why does everybody think Paul is so great? I'm writing stuff. Why aren't people reading what I'm writing? I want to preach. Why aren't people giving me the time that they give Paul? Envy's a real thing. When I was coming up uh, in the church and ministry, I remember I had, um, I was serving in a youth ministry. I was, I was maybe three months after high school. And my plan three months after high school was this. I was going to take a year off, I was going to work, and then I was going to go to Bible college. God's plan for me was a bit different. I took three months off, worked, and then God told me I was going on the mission field. And while on the mission field, I started going to Bible college, uh, so that worked out. But it was uh, summer after I graduated from high school. I was serving in a youth ministry at my church, and the youth pastor was on his summer vacation, and he had said, hey, uh, can you teach youth group that night? Can you teach the Bible study at youth group that night? I said, yeah, I can do that. And I showed up, and this other youth leader who was 10 years older than me, so I was 18, he's like 28. I showed up, he's like, no, man, there's a change of plans. I'm doing it tonight. I said, well, I was told I was doing it. You know, I just, is the scheduling error? Was I supposed to do next week? He's like, no, I've got this week and next week. And you know what? I was kind of like, I'm not sure about that, but at the same time, 
I'm 18, he's 28, there's an age difference, power dynamics, whatever. And I said, okay, cool. And I just chilled it out. Youth pastor came back from vacation, found out what had happened, and realized that there was this other guy, you know, the 28-year-old guy. And he was jealous of me for getting an opportunity. And he also wanted the youth pastor's job. He thought, you know what, he, got, he was getting this vibe that the youth pastor was, was going to move on to something different. And so he was like trying to position himself to be the obvious candidate for the youth pastor's job. I was 18. I knew I wasn't in a position to have that role. And so I was like, just whatever, you know. I mean, look, I'm not going to lie. Like, I remember that night. I remember my pride being hurt. I remember being embarrassed. Like, I had prepared all this stuff and then, um, you know, being told that I had gotten it wrong, that I wasn't supposed to preach. It was embarrassing, right? And uh, youth pastor came back, apologized. The other guy had to apologize, which was even more embarrassing. Um, churches do awkward stuff. Anyway, there are people who preach out of weird reasons. They are envious of somebody else. They want a following. There are people who start podcasts, blogs, YouTube channels because they want people to listen to them and they want all the attention to go to them. There are people who start churches because they're big personalities and dynamic people. And it's just like, that's just who they are as people. They gather a crowd. But they're not actually called. They're just big dynamic people. And then you see like these sort of cults of personality that develop. But what Paul is saying is this. Some people are preaching Jesus for a bad reason. But if the good news does good work, then we need to praise God and trust God. We're talking about the local church. There's the global church and there's the local church. And with social media, I am more aware of what's happening in the global church than ever before. I know about, just as me, just me, not counting other people who know more than I do. But just little old me, I know about the global church more than any Christian in previous eras of church history. There was no Christian in 1890 who knew as much about what was going on in the global church than any Christian living today because of social media, because of technology, because of phones and emails and texts, because of YouTube and Telegram and these other channels of conveying information. There's no Christian alive today who, know, you know, who has the opportunity to know less, right? We have more knowledge and we're more aware of things. And as we are more aware of things, we go, oh man, that's going on over there. That's going on over there. That's awesome, but that is really bad. And what Paul is saying is this. As we are connected to each other, as we have relationship with each other, as we know what is going on in the local church and in the global church, there's some people who are doing good things for bad reasons. And maybe you're seeing that somewhere. You know of some church where that's happening, some ministry where that's happening, some small group or something where that's happening. And he is saying you have to trust God that the good work could still be happening despite all this. I know people who have come to faith through the preaching of people who it appears were not actually Christians. I know of people who have had their lives changed through the ministry of churches that had abusive cultures. I know people that were snatched from the gates of hell by a pastor who's now in jail. So what Paul is saying is, look, there are people who are doing good things for bad reasons, with bad motives, with bad intentions. But 
We have to trust that God is doing good work. And we have to trust that God will do his work. And what I mean by that is this. I said earlier about how churches are structured. I have friends that are just convinced their way of structuring a church is the only way of doing it. And any church that's not structured that way is inherently unhealthy and therefore in a bad place. And I'll say this. There are churches that are structurally unhealthy. But praise God for the good work he's doing through those dysfunctional, messy churches. There are churches that are toxic and abusive, and yet God is doing a work. I'm seeing this all over where he is cleaning things out. And we rejoice that God has not abandoned those churches or those people, and he is doing a cleaning out work. And at the same time, God's saving people despite of messed up humans. Where does that leave us? For Christians, it's good to know how things are structured. It's good for people to know that we have a superintendent in our conference who could come in and fire me. Um, we're not a cult of personality. There are churches, I, could, I won't say them online, but I, if you asked me in private, I could tell you churches in the area where if the pastor was emotionally manipulative, spiritually abusive, uh, sleeping around with people in the church, and nobody could fire them. I'm thankful that we have that kind of coverage. At the same time, we are connected relationally with one another. We're not alone. We're not isolated. I'm thankful for that. We also have the freedom as a church to be independent locally. This, the main office somewhere doesn't tell us what to do. The superintendent calls me every quarter. I talk to him more than that, but he calls me every quarter. How are things going at the church? How are you doing? How can I pray for you? We're supported. We're not controlled. We're connected. We're not commanded. And we want to have that relationship with other Christians and other churches, with our own family of churches in the Pacific Conference, and also with churches all over. We want to care about what's happening. We want to be honest with each other. That's where small groups come in. Because within the small group, there are things that happen in my small group that I won't ever tell anybody else because we have safety and connection there. And you know what? There are things that are going off. There are churches in the area and churches globally where I hear about stuff and I go, oh man. But I'm trusting God that he is going to take care of those issues. And I see him doing that repeatedly. And I'm also trusting that the good news of Jesus will supersede our failings and do his good work changing people's lives, bringing people from darkness into life, from bondage into freedom, from brokenness into healing. We'll continue our study in the book of Philippians next week, finishing out chapter one. We'll be gathered in our small groups this week, youth group, online, in person, wherever you're at. If you have any questions, just want to reach out. Love to hear from you. My email is adam at faithonhill.com. You can find out more about the small groups at smallgroups at faithonhill.com. And you can search Faith on Hill on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts for all of our online content. We'll see you next Sunday morning as we gather together and study God's word. I pray that you go in the power and the grace of Jesus from this moment. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. I will